0: just very excited. You know, there's things that you, uh, uh, you know, you plan and pray for for a long time, and this series is one of those. It has felt very um, impactful to me, and I hope it will be for you as well. We're going through what's called the Decalogue, uh, commonly known as the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue is uh, ten sayings that really are defining how Israel, and I say us, uh, are to experience freedom. That as we come out from being under the oppression of the enemy, from the oppression of the outside world, God wants to set us free. And these 10 words are a description of freedom. How to experience freedom, not just from external oppression, but actually the things that go on in our own lives and in our relationships. And so today we're looking at commandment number three. And it's recorded in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh, your God. So uh, I've said before, and just as a reminder, whenever you see in the Bible a capital L-O-R-D, all capitalized, that is uh, referring to another word that's called Yahweh. And we're going to find out why that's important, but that, those words are the same thing. So... Uh, Do not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh, the Lord, will not not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Somebody named Clarence Sickles, not a great name. If a poll were taken, I venture a guess that the average responder would say the third commandment is the least demanding of the Ten Commandments. On the contrary, Elton Trueblood claims that the third commandment does not condemn those who fail to believe; it condemns those who believe and do nothing about it. Of all the commandments, this one hits us the hardest. So, there's a heads up for you. This is what the next half an hour is going to be. Hit. I was uh, I was preaching in Surrey, and the person uh, somebody came up to me afterwards, and they said. I felt like I was punched with love. (laughs) Not sure about any of that, but, anyways, um, so brace yourself. The context for this command is the previous two. These three are a bundle together that describe most of what life is about. The first is worship. We should have no other gods before us. Uh, Our life problems are. I can't say all because that wouldn't be right. Mostly rooted in false worship. That's the main thing going on. And this culture would like to say that's almost never the, the problem. There's always a situational problem or an internal problem. It's not a worship problem. Well, it's a worship problem. So that's the first thing. So we need to clarify who God is. And then once we say I want to follow God, then the second commandment says, well, you can't just follow who you imagine God to be. You need to follow him for who he really is, or else you're just following a figment of your imagination. That's not helpful. So once you clarify who God is, uh, sorry, once you decide to worship God, you need to clarify who he really is. And then comes this third commandment, that after you uh, decide to worship him, know who he really is, now you need to live like that. And that name, who you discover him to be, now needs to be uh, the way that you live. This commandment then can be summed up as not, as not misrepresenting uh, God's name. Now, so what we want to do during our short time together is look at what God's name is, how to misuse God's name, and then how to honor God's name. So let's look at what God's name is. Uh, in Genesis, the, when God describes himself to Abraham, he describes himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is a generic name. It is like when we say God, we know that we're talking about the Christian God, but really the name God could mean any God. And this is what that is like. It's, it's God, but God Almighty, kind of the, the one above all the other gods. But it's a generic name. And so then we see this progression inside of scripture. It starts with something very generic. And then it becomes I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, this is, uh, this is staggering. Imagine being the most powerful being ever. Okay? I mean, you could have tons of action hero movies made about just about you. Uh, like, you are the, the most supreme being. And you go, how will, I, how will I help people know who I am? I know. Uh, I'm the God of my three friends, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a, like I'm, I'm not, you know, they, they, they talk about the omnis, the, the attributes of God, that he's omniscient, omnipresent, and I, I keep getting, what is it? Omnipotent. That, you know, that's a, there you go, that's who God is. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, like he is, and he's everywhere. That's a great definition. No, I'm the God of my three friends. I think that's just absolutely remarkable. Uh, I'm the God of Debbie and Levi and Beatrice. That's who I'm the God of. That's That's what he's doing. Not the God of Dylan, though. No, not Dylan. No, that's very unkind. Very unkind. Uh, um, But but that's what he's saying. He's just saying, these are my three friends, and uh, I'm their God. Who does that? No need to puff himself up. He identifies himself relationally, and it doesn't stop there. Then he says, I'm Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is a personal name. It's not God Almighty. It's not even referring to who knows me or who I know. It is it's the personal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, sometimes, it, so, you know, people call me Pastor Greg. And then sometimes, to be short, they'll say Pastor. There's a and i think it's kind of a cultural thing i know in the south they do this in southern states but they 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 don't they just drop the personal name and they just say you know hello pastor i uh, i just think that misses first of all what pastoring is about it's a relationship it's not a title or a position um but it's like somebody comes over to fix my plumbing and go hey plumber like you you see you say their name you don't just say God, you say Yahweh. That's what, it's a personal name. Isn't that great? He, he wants to be known like that. He's not just a, a, a thing that does stuff. He wants a relationship and so he gives us this personal name. Now, this name is a little bit tricky. The name is a verb and it's I am. What it does not mean is I exist. It doesn't go, hi, I'm I'm existing. That's not his name. In Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew language, there is not a past, present, and future in the way that we understand it in the English language. And so his name could be described. It's a relational name. And it's, I was, I will, uh, I am, and I will be with you always. It's, Is describing his relationship with his people I'm with you you're not alone I'm here I'm present I am and all all that could describe me is now with you in this moment of your life we're together this name gets even uh, even uh, more clearly described when Jesus comes and he describes himself as Emmanuel which is God with us this is his name It's the same as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I'm not just with them. I'm now with you. And this is how I choose to describe myself in terms of my relationship with you. This is the God that we worship as God Almighty. What a beautiful name. And then when Jesus prays to God, he describes him as Father. Now, uh, just like I would lobby that Yahweh should not be translated into English. Uh, The same has already been true about Abba. It's, it's, It's not translated because you can't fully... I mean, you can say Daddy. That's probably as close as you can get. But you can't fully capture all that's going on when he says Abba. It's a name that is deeply intimate, but it's bound up with respect. It does... For God to identify himself with us doesn't make him less creator, less almighty. He's just saying that all that I am is now with you and for you always. I'm your father. What an incredible God. Now, in Exodus 34, he goes even further in describing himself. Listen to this description. So, this description... Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Uh, in the Bible, is the most often quoted by the Bible. So uh, these two verses, the Bible quotes more than any other parts of the Bible. It keeps referring back to this. So we know it's important. Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord. But again, you get that personal dimension to it. For you, always. For you, always. This is who I am. I'm with you. Now, let me describe how I'm with you. I'm the compassionate and gracious God. Compassionate is about his feelings. Graciousness is about his actions. How I feel and act towards you is kindly and graciously. And I'm slow to anger. During this time, and I think it would be true of all gods at all times, uh, gods are fickle and mostly upset. If you have false gods, they're always a little bit bugged with you. Uh, they, and so along comes this God and says, I'm slow to anger. I'm not quick to anger. I'm slow. It takes me a long time to get upset about things. And I don't know what your earthly father is like, but this is really great to know about our heavenly father. He's not looking for ways to be upset, he's not thinking about that. He's thinking mostly about being kind and generous towards us. I love it. Slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. I'm going to say the word poorly, but it's a literary term. For those of you who are English majors, you can laugh out loud. Uh, Hendiadys. What it means is two words, when combined, create a new meaning. But the, the, the words individually can't capture what's trying to be said. The words have to be united in order to understand what's being said. And the two words are love and faithfulness. They're covenant words. They're a description of how God relates to us. He says, I'm bound to you in love and kindness and generosity. I am faithful to you in a loving kind of way and I'm loving in a faithful kind of way. I can't separate, so I have to say two words to say what my relationship is like with you. I'm a f- I am always going to be faithful and loving towards you. I'm not going to change my character. I'm not going to change who I am or how I relate to you. I relate to you with kindness and generosity in a covenant commitment to you. This is God. Maintaining love to thousands. He's maintaining kindness to thousands of people all at once. He's maintaining it. He's making sure that his people are loved. He's overseeing that. What a beautiful responsibility. And then he's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It's interesting that he used three words. You could have used one, but he's describing all the dimensions of evil. He's going to forgive any way that you can imagine being evil or someone being evil towards you. He just forgives all that. And his primary way of relating to us is according to forgiveness and not judgment. Now, I, we uh, referred in the first week That the primary God, at least that we uh, clearly worship in the West, is the God of self. Now, I don't know about you, but I am super hard on myself. Way harder than anybody else is. Uh, Me, when I act as my God, I am typically condemning of my behavior. Well, every dimension of who I am, I'm condemning of it. I am a... Cruel, quick-tempered, condemning God to myself. And God comes along and says, I'm none of that. I am kind and generous and good towards you. I don't think about how to condemn you. I think about how to draw closer and forgive and overlook. Absolutely remarkable. So this first section... uh, so if you've, if you've been to Establish, you know this, but uh, so God is a God of love. And the two dimensions of love that capture who God is, is mercy and justice. And again, if you've been to Establish, you know that mercy is God's love toward criminals. If you've done something wrong, you want mercy. Justice is God's love toward victims. If someone has done something against you, you want justice. You don't want mercy. You want justice. So mercy and justice capture what God's love is like. And this is his name. So now we're going to move. That was mercy. Now let's move to justice. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I'm, I am, my first move is always mercy. Yet, I got to say this too. I, I, I don't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, and this is where it gets awkward, so we're going to work on this. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, seems wrong, to the third and fourth generation. Well, that's, that's not great. We have this beautiful, forgiving God, and then he says, by the way, whenever I exact justice, I don't just do it toward the one who commits the crime, but also to their kids. Well, let's work on that. We need to know, first of all, in Deuteronomy uh, 24, 16, that God says the opposite of this. He says, I never will put to death a child for the sins of the father and vice versa. I'll never do that. So this has to mean something other than that. So to explain this, I'd like to explain God's three instruments of punishment. This is the three ways that he inflicts I feel like I should have some, some weapons or something up here, but uh, it's not about that. Uh, this is the three ways that he does it. He does it uh, directly, indirectly, and passively. Direct. There are a few times, a few times, it is the exception, not the rule, when God directly intervenes, It's divine intervention, and he, and he, he, and he brings judgment. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of that. Where a, where a whole, uh, you know, cities are destroyed just divinely by God. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, we talked about them uh, a short while ago, where they fell down dead for lying. That's a little intense. But this is divine intervention, hardly ever happens. It's going to happen ultimately on Judgment Day, but doesn't regularly happen now. The other two happen very regularly. The first is indirectly through human governments that God has instituted. So whether it's um, the government of Canada or B.C., uh, parents, there'll be, there'll be authorities in the, um, uh, in the marketplace, teaching, uh, well, even in the church, there's elders. God institutes uh, human authorities to execute punishment. So that's true, and maybe we've experienced that to varying degrees. The third is the most relevant to this description in Exodus 34, and it's passive. So uh, direct is about divine intervention. Indirect is about human authorities. Passive is about sin. The way that God executes judgment is by letting us have our way and it impacting the people around us. This is a terrifying form of judgment. In Romans one twenty four, when sin is described, he, he, uh, God says, you've clearly seen me, you've forsaken me, you deny that I'm God, that I'm good. And so this is my judgment. I'm going to let you have your way. I'm just going to let you have your way. John Mark Comer gives a a sobering quote. He says this, and it'll be on the screen. Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not. Yahweh's forgiving. That's his, his description of his name. Sin is not forgiving. Sin has consequences. And those consequences don't just impact you, they impact everybody around you. And I would be unjust and disrespectful of you if you could live in an isolated bubble and didn't actually have any impact on other people. But if you're going to be able to impact people positively, you also have to be able to impact them negatively. And your decisions could impact innocent people. And everyone knows this to be true, right? If you, uh, if you come from an alcoholic home, the odds of you being an alcoholic dramatically increase. If you come from an abusive home, that has impact. And so you and I... Are the result of the the goodness and evil of our parents, and we work that through in our relationship with God. But it's true. The New Living Translation says in Exodus thirty four seven. It translates it this way: the entire family is affected. The entire family is going to be affected by our decisions. This is God's name, mercy and justice. How do we misuse this name? Well, we misrepresent or misuse God's love and power. This is where it gets convicting. We misrepresent or misuse God's love and power, and we do this in at least four ways. Let's look at each one. We'll go through them quite quickly. But the first, well, we curse, we blaspheme, we deceive and ignore. Other than that, you know, we're all good. The first is we curse. We speak or act unlovingly. We misrepresent God by speaking and acting in ways that betray his nature. He's slow to anger. He's kind. He's generous. He's gracious. When we don't do that, we're misusing his name. Uh, if you call yourself a Christian, we bear the name Christian. We're Christians. And then we misrepresent him if we act in ways that don't reflect Jesus. This is the primary way that we misuse his name. Ephesians 4.29 uh, it says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Ephesians 5, four said, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, but rather thanksgiving. Uh, listen to people talk, and it seems as though uh, Christians have a paranoia about appearing religious which could actually be a legitimate uh, accusation. But uh, in order to avoid looking religious, we just skirt the line of unwholesome, uh, obscene, foolish, coarse talk. See, I'm relevant too. I can speak in ways that are just, I just hint at it. Because I'm a Christian, so I've got to watch it. But I, but I stay on a line of speaking in ways that are not great. Slight sexual innuendos, not clear ones. That would be inappropriate. Slight ones. I'm slightly obscene. Uh, I speak in ways that are not wholesome. That's misusing God's name. So that's about how we act or speak towards other people, is we're betraying who God is by our actions. Number two is about directly about God, where we blaspheme we speak ungratefully or disrespectfully about god it's shocking how easily can roll off of our tongue uh, blasphemous language about god i don't believe that he's good i don't believe that he's, that he's kind i don't this you are not this and we speak disrespectfully of him there's a lack of fear of the lord that we just aren't afraid to say things about God that are the opposite of who he is. And we'll couch it by saying, I'm just being honest. No, you're actually just lying. Uh, It's not true what you're saying. But we blaspheme the name of God. We deceive. We use his reputation uh, for self-serving purposes. So one of the ways that we would do this is we would lie under oath. We would say, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, I swear in the Bible, and you lie. And so you use uh, some kind of prop that, has, that, that shows you know, God's good, and you use his reputation to hide your lie, uh, to gain favor. Is another way that we use the Christian name to gain favor. So have you, uh, you know, have you noticed you'll, let's say, I don't know, you're going shopping for a couch. And then you find out that the person selling you the couch is a Christian. Brother, (laughs) can you give me a deal? For God, you know, in Jesus' name, can you, can you just give me a break here? I'm dying, this is super expensive, but we're in the same family. So, but we use God's name for a self-serving purpose. Remember, a friend of mine owned a business that had hundreds of employees in it. And they said that when, uh, he said that when they look to hire people, they typically Don't try to hire Christians. This is a strong Christian believer. Typically, don't try to hire Christians because Christians are always looking for favors. They're always looking for a way out, not working hard. He says, with a non-Christian, at least they know that if you don't work hard, you get fired. It's clear. It's clear that it's about performance. But with the Christians, it's always, oh, you're a Christian boss. Oh, good. Can I get a raise for doing less? One of the things that I, I have to watch being in a position as a pastor is I can't, uh, I have to be very, very careful to not use my position to get personal favors. So if, if somebody is going to do me a favor, I'm going to say it up front, you know, uh, like this is a favor. And then if not, I have to be ready to pay full price for whatever somebody's doing. If they want to be kind, they can. I can never assume that. I can never use my position as a pastor to manipulate that. That would be misusing God's name. Super important to me. Is gaining favor. Uh, magic incantations. That you think if you say the name of Jesus, something cool is going to happen because you invoked his name into that moment. And finally, cursing or forcing a point. Using his name in vain, saying Jesus Christ not as worship, but as an exclamation point to making to driving home uh, what you want other people to consider to be important. you use his name to give it an extra umph. It's misusing his name. Finally, and perhaps most soberingly is to ignore his name, to not call upon God at all. This is perhaps the most uh, disturbing, is that we just think we're doing fine. Why would I call upon God? I can just take care of things myself. It's not a problem. I just work harder. I just make a way for myself. I don't need him. Zephaniah 1.12 says, God's going to do nothing, good or bad. It doesn't matter. He's irrelevant. That's misusing his name. It's saying that he's not relevant. He's not helpful. He's not powerful. I can do things on my own. That's, a, that's misrepresenting him. Because, of course, the truth of the matter is you and I are breathing right now because uh, he's letting us. And to forget that isn't smart. So that's how we misuse God's name. How do we honor God's name? Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this gets very interesting because what's his name? So whatever you do, do it in the name of Yahweh. A personal God uh, who is present and loving. Do it in that name. So whatever you do, don't just do things like a robot. Do it personally. Be fully present and do it in love. Uh, Do it with compassion and graciousness. Whatever you do, in word or deed, be compassionate and gracious. Be slow to anger. And make sure that you're abounding in love and faithfulness. Show love to whoever you can and forgive every kind of wickedness that is done towards you. Go do that. Now you're representing his name because now you're walking into a moment looking like him, being that image bearer that we talked about last week. That's clear. (coughs) The most profound and critical way to, betray, uh, to uh, portray God is with mercy. Now, what about justice? Do we go around punishing people and saying this is in Jesus' name? Just letting you know. It's not my idea. Uh, what does justice look like when it comes to portraying his name? It looks like we have three options. The first two are bad, to give you a heads up. The first is Power. I'm just going to make you be loving and kind. Parents do this all the time. I'm larger, do what I say. Um, sometimes we have to, for the protection of others. But uh, it's just power. It's the way that the church, the church should be more vocal, more public. It should stand up and say, this is right and this is wrong. It's the responsibility of the church. And we see this in other countries. And they're called, if you haven't heard this on the news recently, the morality police. Have you heard this phrase? That in Iran, in Afghanistan, uh, there's a, there's a, a group that is, that is enforcing religious law, not just social law. They go around making sure that there's head coverings or whatever else it would be, and they just make it happen because it's a just society, and this is God's law, and we should enforce it. It's interesting where power takes us. If we try to enforce the justice of God, it creates war and division. Cornelius Platinga says this, um, all shots are return fire. So what this means is that anytime time we stand for justice, which is typically self-serving, we won't go there right now, uh, whenever we stand for a moment, then people stand for their side. And then you then have to show your side. And then they have to show more clearly their side. And we have a war. Whether it's happening in home or in the the marketplace or um, among nations. Everybody thinks they're going second. Well, they did that. I have to respond. Justice demands that I respond. I can't ignore that. That would be unjust. Are you following the logic? And so, what do you and I say all the time? I need to stand up for my rights. I can't let people walk over me. That would be unjust, and so I'm going to help them be respectful by standing up for myself. That makes sense, does it not? All shots fired, uh, all shots are return fire. Now you shoot back demanding your rights where well they go, "You can't do that to me, and here we go. The second is the opposite, which is passive. There's a prophet, I don't know if you've heard of her. Her name is uh, Taylor Swift. And in, uh, and in 1989, it began her career, and uh, she wrote a very prophetic song that I wanted to share with you. I'm not going to sing it, because I'd put her to shame. But I'm going to just say, uh, just say two lines that I think capture uh, a profound... <laughs> Heresy. But anyways. It's uh it says that uh it says the haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Baby, I'm just gonna shake, 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 shake. I shake it off, I shake it off. You guys are writing this down. I hope you're writing this down. <clears throat> it's uh it's uh justice I don't care you can't hurt me I just shake it off I got no problems I don't care what you think I don't care what you do I'm just going to be my own person and do things in my own way I'm just going to shake it off it's passivity I'm not my brother's keeper you do what you want I'll do me and it's all and it's it's all fine it's a passive way of, living, of going through life. I watch people living in a bubble, and I'm tempted to do it myself, just live in a bubble and not care about anything else going on. I just am going to care about myself. And if you, if you try to burst my bubble, I will build defenses like you have no idea because nobody's going to hurt me. Nobody's going to tell me who I am or how to live or what to do, especially a pastor. I'm my own person. I shake off any kind of expectations, and I call them judgmental. And you shouldn't judge me. I don't judge you. It's uh, shockingly popular. And the hope is to never be hurt. And instead, it creates an incredibly small life. One of my sons was going to Langara uh, a number of years ago. And I still remember the story. It was just so graphic to me. He, uh, he, he was uh, walking out of Langer and he noticed somebody uh, right beside him. And it happened to be a woman. And so he just opened the door for her. Just because, you know, you just want to be kind of respectful of her. So he, he opens the door for her. And then she chuckles and she says, I don't think so. I don't think so. And she waits for him to go first and then. There's no way. There's no way you're gonna treat me as a subordinate. I don't need a door opened by you. I don't think so. I thought that was such a graphic picture of where my heart goes when I'm self-protected, and I think where we all go. I don't think so. I'm not. You're not gonna hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm gonna make sure that that's gonna happen. I'm gonna shake it off, baby. The, uh, the third alternative, and the one that I'm lobbying for today, is proactive love. This gets very, very interesting. How, listen now, this is the whole point of the sermon. This is where we're all headed towards. How does the church stand for justice? What are we supposed to do in the face of evil and wrongdoing? Romans 12, 21 gives a fascinating response as to how the church, otherwise known as you and I, we're the church. It's not an institution. We're the church. Uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way to, uh, to defeat evil is by being good. Not by standing for our rights. Not by just shaking it off. We actually go on the offensive, and we overcome evil with good. And what is good? It's merciful. What does every, okay, we're, we're on the justice topic, right? So, what is the most, what does every human being deserve? What's the, you know, inalienable right of every human being? To be shown mercy. Not just to stand up for rights. The, what everyone needs is the mercy of God. That's a right. And everyone is, no one is exempt from needing that. So if I'm going to exhibit what you truly need, and if I'm going to truly defend you, I'm not going to defend what you think you deserve. I'm going to defend your need to be forgiven. Your need to be loved while yet a sinner. Because that's what Christ has done for me. That's how I got set free. And it's the only way that you're going to be set free. Is if you're given mercy. It is just to give mercy. I was going for a, I was going for a walk with, uh, with Pastor Matt this week, and uh, I said, there's one thing that has shaped me more than anything else, and it's been my chronic sinfulness. And I says, I believe that my sinfulness has been the primary thing that has kept me somehow safe in ministry because I know I'm not different than anybody else. I don't come from a position of victory and success. I come from a position of needing mercy as much as anybody else needs mercy. And the moment I think I need less mercy is the moment I'm a dangerous leader. As they say, we're all wounded healers. So here's the point. Enemies have names. God has a name. You have a name. And your enemies have a name. And to carry the name of Jesus means you go into a moment personally. What's your name? You're not a pimp. What's your name? And you're present and you're loving. Now we're carrying the name of God into this world. I cannot tell you how critical that is for the church to grab a hold of. It is so easy. But what is the church known for? Judgmentalism. Especially pastors. Our testimony needs to be I was freely forgiven and now I freely forgive others. And whoever I would have the privilege of coming in contact with I wouldn't condemn them for their sin. I would offer the forgiveness that was so generously offered to me. This needs to be the reputation of the church, not so much what we're against, but that we would love the way that we've been loved. This takes faith. It takes faith in one primary thing, that God will actively judge one day. And it won't be through us. And because he will ultimately be judge, I'm freed up to be merciful. And it needs to be the characteristic of my life. The thing I get most angry about when I preach, when I listen to myself preach, and when I look at how I live my life, is if I would ever put on you judgment. It makes me sick inside, and it's what I mostly feel sick about. I'll I'll finish preaching, and I go, Greg, I mean, God is self, perhaps, but also true. You just, you weren't, you didn't portray the love of God well enough. It's my biggest complaint about my preaching. I, I just, you so deserve mercy. You just, you need mercy. You don't need judgment. You need mercy. I need mercy. And when I, when I bathe in mercy, I'm free to be merciful to others. And it's something that I pray about for myself and I pray about for our community all the time. In conclusion, how I, I've said it a bit, but I, I want to say it clearly. How do we become a merciful people? It's by, uh, it's by recognizing our own need for mercy. We think of the story of the woman who, um, who poured perfume and, uh, on Jesus. And then what do the uh, Christians say? That could have been used for the poor. What are you doing? This is an unwise use of money. We should be better with it. It's a judgmental thought. Jesus' response is, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Thus, she loved much. The one who is forgiven, uh, the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Don't you want to be forgiven a lot? I want to be forgiven a lot, not a little. I don't want to begin my confessions with sin with the phrase "I just." I watch it when I when when Debbie points out something. I'll begin my rebuttal with "I just," instead of. It's worse than you think. I never go there. Well, reluctantly. I don't go. Wouldn't it be profound that we could begin our confessions with? That's not the half of it. Because if I'm forgiven much, I'll love much. Oh, that we would be free to be sinners. Oh, that we would be free to be sinners so that we could be forgiven much. And then we'll become the most loving people. Not because we thought about self-sacrifice. It's because we thought about how we've been forgiven. And we're just free to love and forgive others. My friends, this is the name of God. Merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. And this is who we are as his image bearers. And it begins so ironically, with being broken. This is the invitation that's being offered. Let us receive and give mercy freely. We will glorify his name. We'll be personally set free. And the world around us will be healed of its unrighteousness and evil, just like we've been. Can we please stand together? Uh, we we did this last week, and I really would like to continue this because uh, I think it's just good for our souls. Uh, if you haven't noticed, I'm not a demonstrative person, <clears throat> but sometimes things require actions, and I think receiving forgiveness and forgiving others require an action. And I think it might start with being prayed for. I don't want you to leave today without coming closer into relationship with God and others. Not thinking that you have to figure this out on your own. You get to figure this out together. We get to be broken together. We get to be forgiven together. Maybe we get to forgive others together. And so I would like to invite you. You don't have to. It's totally fine. But I would like to invite you, if you would like somebody to mediate God's forgiveness to you, come forward. If you would like to uh, help from somebody to forgive others, come on forward, we'll help you with that. Because you wouldn't come forward if you didn't want it. And so we'll help you find freedom from bitterness, from a self-serving sense of justice. Oh, it would be a privilege to walk that through with you. Father, we thank you so much for your name. I knew your name was good and it gets better and better the more we get to know you and experience you and read about you. Your name is beautiful. Father, I pray that your name would be a safe place for us. read in a book where when somebody thinks of the name father it means they have to run and hide but how if we truly thought of the name father it would mean that we would come close and confess our sin God we want you to be that kind of father where you can be a safe place for us to be known to be real to be forgiven And then sent to carry that good news message to others. So, Father, would you please bring freedom into our hearts? That we would no longer have to shake it off. We would no longer have to force. We could be broken. And be free to love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.